You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. Uh, hello. Good morning. Um, it's funny when you're... So a couple of things. The song that you guys are singing where it was, I'll dance, I dance, I dance. Uh, I think that's a pretty good representation of knowing that you're, you're free and that you have joy. And it reminded me... Uh, so Tennille and I, our anniversary, our seven-year anniversary is tomorrow. And the first time that I ever willingly went on a dance floor was to dance with her. And I'm not, this next story is not a joke. Before I was like free of my shame and uh, was living out of a lot more love and patience, uh, a friend of ours got married in Houston, Texas. And I went and I, I refused to go on a dance floor forever. Like I, I would not go on a dance floor. And this, uh, she's a very assertive woman, this woman that was getting married, and she came and grabbed me during her wedding, pulled me onto the dance floor, and people were pushing me from behind, and I almost hit her. Like, I literally, like, I almost punched a bride on her wedding day (laughs) because she was pulling me onto the, and I literally hit the dance floor, walked straight off the other side, and left the room. So, like, that's how, that's how resistant I was to, Dancing. So I th- and then the other thing that reminded me, it went, Andy, when you said, um, like how you noticed where you wouldn't hit, I don't even know the right language. I'm not a musician. Like when you weren't hitting a certain note, I was like, you have to, that's when you know that you or someone is really, really good at what they do. Because my guess is if you had no musical background or vocal background, no one else in here except Andy knew that he almost missed that note. You know what I mean? Like, Okay, well, yeah, these are the people. Yeah, exactly. They knew what was going on. I don't. I had no idea. I was like, it sounds wonderful to me. So I, um, so how many of you were here last week? Okay, good number of you. Uh, How many of you practiced any of the things that we walked through last week? Like ten of you. Okay. Was there any? Did you notice anything? Did it help? Okay, good. All right. So the rest of you who didn't do it, look, there's a reality to this. Like, you got to practice stuff out here. It doesn't just happen. Like, um, okay. So we're calling this part two. I, you know, I don't know if this is so much a part two. We'll, we'll just see where it goes. But, um, okay. How many of you would say that you're disciplined? Like, and also now we can, okay, so some, so some of you are disciplined. How many of you would say, I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot, but how many of you would say you're disciplined, um, physically? Like, you take care of your body. How many of you would say you're disciplined, uh, relationally? Like, you have healthy, solid friendships and family. Okay. How many of you would say you're disciplined with money? Ooh, okay. All right. Uh, how many of you would say you're disciplined emotionally? Like, you know what's going on inside your mind, you know what's going on inside your body, and you can communicate that clearly, and it doesn't make things worse. Okay. So we hit money and emotions, and it went down. Like, okay. Um, all right. So I want to go back to, for, for me and for everyone in the room, um, I want to go back and I want to read... Uh, the passage that we're coming out of. I'm not going to have all of you stand. I'm just going to read it uh, this morning. Uh, it was coming out of Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who have disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Okay, so we talked a little bit about shame last week and and moving beyond that, Um, being honest, telling your story, sharing your story with people that are close to you. Uh, and then the result of that, uh, which I think is the fruit of the Spirit, uh, the first one being you have to know you're loved, um, and then the joy comes, right? You have to be free to know that whoever you are, the things you've done, uh, or the decisions you've made, or what you believe about yourself might not be true, uh, that there's something that loves you greater than you love yourself, uh, and if you can embrace that, uh, there's a sense of joy and patience and kindness and forgiveness uh, that comes after that. So... Um, I said this last week, I'll repeat it again. I don't think, as far as I can tell, when I'm working with folks in my office, that you can embody shame in a moment and also know that you're loved. I don't think you can hold those two things together. Okay. I realized last week uh, that I, I didn't do a, I didn't do the best job of uh, going back and recapping some stuff that I was trying to say. Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about how I approach therapy. Um, I did say therapy won't save you. It won't. Like, it's a practice. It's, it's a great thing to be a part of. It's a great thing to do for yourself. Um, it's a humbling thing to do for yourself. Um, but at the end of the day, like, your connection to God, you're knowing you're loved by God, you're following Jesus, like, that's stronger. Therapy's like, it's like working out. That's literally how I think about it. Instead of working out your body, you're working out your heart and your mind. You're working out how to take that from whatever experience you're having in the room with me, or your spouse, or whoever's in the room, if it's a family, and you, you extend that out to the rest of the world um, so that it becomes a better place. 
so you, you literally come in and you, you practice, you train. How many of you are familiar with uh, the idea of neuroplasticity? Okay. All right, cool. So about half the room. Um, neuroplasticity, for, the, for those of you that don't know, it's, we know now that your brain has the ability to wire and rewire itself, right? So if you, um, it's, it, it literally, you can restructure parts of your brain um, through practice, through prayer, through meditation, through acting. Um, it's very clear that we can do that. There's no, every neuroscientist that I've heard talk, no one's discredited that idea. Uh, so it's like building a muscle. Um, I say um a lot too, and I need to, I caught that last week too, that's not good. Um, <laughs> so with everything going on uh, in the world right now, uh, I mean, there's a lot going on, on a lot of different levels. A client came in this week and he asked me, he said, uh, so what are you telling people to do with everything that's going on in the world right now? I mean, obviously this past week was a big week, but, and I said, take care of yourself, take care of your family, help as many people as you can. If you want to know how to like get through chaos or uncertainty, it's like that's how you do it. Uh, we might have to extend this to another talk in the future, but there's actually an order. There's a way to think that can keep your home in order that 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 offers that you can offer your best to the world. And it's and for those of you that aren't married, just take out the marriage part. God, the marriage, you as individuals, your kids, everyone else. Right? Like if you want to, if you want to learn how to make decisions and prioritize things and keep your life in order and then be able to offer your best to other people, that's the way to do it as far as I can tell. Right? So those of you that have kids. So God, the marriage. When you have kids, where do the kids go? They might even go, I mean, some people throw out God because you got to take care of kids. I don't know, you know, uh, usually it, it definitely goes above the marriage. Right. And so what happens then? it's like then the taking care of yourself goes down to the bottom. And so at the end of the day, if you're not taking care of yourself, do you think you're giving the best of yourself or the worst of yourself to your family or to the people around you? The worst of yourself. Right. So it's really this is this is not easy. Like, you know, I, I think my wife and I do it mostly well, but it's not it's not easy. But you, there is a way to think that actually allows yourself to offer one to know that you're secure emotionally and that you're healthy physically and that you can you can think clearly and make wise decisions and then to pass that on to the people around you there's a yeah this might go into a whole other arena um that's just a way to think about it okay all right so the idea of discipline so um i would say uh I'm disciplined physically, I'm disciplined emotionally, uh, I'm learning to become more financially disciplined. Um, relationally, I think, it's an interesting way, friendship-wise, I'm okay at it, probably, not, not great. Um, you know, so I was thinking through, like, where are the arenas that I'm disciplined in? Uh, you know, the finance one was always the hardest uh, I grew up in a scenario where I don't, I wouldn't, I can't technically say we were poor, but we weren't, we definitely weren't, 
there were nights where there wasn't any food. We had to figure it out for ourselves. Um, we were evicted from a couple homes. I don't know where that puts you on the not doing well financial scale. So I didn't have a good perspective of money. Uh, my wife, similar. So we were kind of together in that uh, and how we tried to figure out how to um, just be responsible for what we've been given and, and, and offer what we can. Uh, and, and the way that, as far as I can tell, to that we've learned that over the last few years is uh, every year we, and this isn't about money, I'm just, it's an example. Um, we give, we've given more every year in the last five years, not just to the church, but just to out to people that need help uh, than we've ever given. And it, it increases every year, and that's by intention. Uh, and we don't ever need any more than we have. Um, so I think there's obviously the idea connected to that is like if you're willing to discipline yourself to become more generous, even when it when you're not sure uh, what you're going to have, that you'll learn to trust that you're going to be provided for regardless. Back to the neuroplasticity idea. So uh, this, I'm guessing maybe there's a handful of folks who know who this guy is. Have any of you know who Dr. Andrew Huberman is by chance? One, two. Okay, he is a, and I don't have any allegiance to Stanford University. I know I said something about Stanford last week. Uh, I don't have any connection to Stanford University. Um, he is a neuroscientist at Stanford University. He runs uh, a lab called the, the Huberman Lab. It's his last name. Uh, he is doing something that is brilliant that every one of you should pay attention to if you're on social media. You can go to his website too. For a 100 days, he has been offering, like, they're anywhere from maybe eight minutes to, to I think, 12 might be the max, uh, of video clips with visuals of what's happening in your brain and how you can overcome. He's talking about mood, anxiety, fear, shame, gratitude. Like he's covering all of it. And he's a medical doctor. He's really smart and he's really great to listen to. And he's giving you, he probably studied for 20 years to offer to us in 10 minute clips. Like you can learn about your brain. Like you literally, it's all digestible. He does it in such a way that you can literally take it for a day and integrate it and think about it and write about it and do it and then move on to the next day. It's really, I would encourage everyone to listen to what he's doing. Um, he talks about, there was one that he talked about, uh, I think it was day 17 or 16. Uh, your brain is designed to try and make decisions. Right. It's a it's a it's a it's an organism that you can. It's developing and you can train it. Uh, someone asked him. Um, how do we create he was talking about there's uh, there's neurons, there's there's different kinds of neurons. There's one kind of set of neurons called Rafi neurons, and they're responsible basically for um, your mood for destabilizing your mood or generating a certain kind of mood in uh, your system. And someone asked him in one of the Q&As, how do we ensure that the Rafi neurons are firing to help generate the mood that we desire to be in? And this was his response. Actually, I want to guess three things he said that you can practically do that generate the neurons that you need to stay in a in a more joyful and positive mood, just as a human being, what do you think he said? Gratitude, Gratitude was one. 
Exercise was not one, but it helps. <laughs> Gratitude, that's one. Nope. Mm, nope. Okay. So he said, someone asked him, uh, sleep, gratitude, positive social relationships. Right? So it's like, okay, so all of you have are responsible for your own sleep. How many of you like are disciplined with your sleep? Okay. How many of you are disciplined with recognizing things to be grateful for in your life? But then why don't you guys do the gratitude list last week? I'm just kidding. Some of you did. It's like, okay. All right. So that helps. Uh, and then, uh, social relationships. So how many of you pursue intentionally other people to be vulnerable and honest and truthful with? Maybe half. Okay. All right. So the idea of neuroplasticity, uh, it's training, right? So a, a visual that I, when I try to think of like what happens, when you're trying to train something. Obviously, if you're training your body, you can see the physical um, results of that. Uh, if you're training yourself to be disciplined with money, then obviously, hopefully, you're being more generous and you have more money in a bank account or whatever. Uh, the visual of neuroplasticity, one way, to, when you think about, you know when, um, uh, like erosion? You know if you like, if there's a hill and you run water down it, it creates a path? And then over time, if you keep running water down it, it creates a, a wider and stronger path. Like that's essentially what's happening in your brain when you make decisions. That's one way to think about it. Right? So every decision you make that's repetitive fires certain neural networks and circuits and they link together and they create a stronger path. Right? You have, you, everyone in here, unless you have some known medical issue neurologically, you have the ability to do that. That is not something that, that it, it literally is, and that's how I think about discipline, right? It's like you have to choose certain things in a moment at a certain time consistently, and then it becomes a part of your behavior or the way you think or the way you act. And if you don't think you have control over that, then you got a lot of work to do. Because um, on one level, you're abandoning a responsibility. Uh, two, I don't think you're being truthful with yourself, uh, which is not a good place to be. Uh, and three, what I think essentially what that leads to, if you don't think you have choices that can move you forward, then you become a victim. How many of you know victims? Any, anybody ever had a victim attitude for a while? I've had some victim, some uh, gross one. I'm going to tell you about it. Um, so I, because <laughs> at the end, of, it talks about bitterness in that passage too at the end. And, and, I, and I'll, it, it is referencing around sexual immorality, but I don't, bitterness is just gro- like it's gross. Um, I'll tell you when I, when a time when I was really bitter. So I had moved from North Carolina to Los Angeles when I was 25. Uh, <laughs> I went from my own, I owned a condo here in North Carolina and I was moving in with some guys that I really had, didn't know. Like they had, it's a long story. I'll tell that story another time. They said, Hey, we got a place for you to stay if you want to move to LA. I said, okay. So I drove across the country by myself. Um, I literally moved into an eight by four foot closet and I paid $700 a month for it. Uh, welcome to California. That's right. It's, okay. So <laughs> it literally was like, you guys can't see that. It's like this space was what I had. Uh, clearly that was not a wise decision, but so that was my starting ground in LA. I lived in a closet with an air mattress and like a suitcase. 
and then I moved to the beach, like like doorstep sand for two months down in Hermosa Beach. It was amazing, and I paid $1,200 a month for that. That was stupid. Um, it was great to live on the beach, though. So you can see the so closet to the beach, from the beach to a home. I, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with L.A., but to Pasadena, so much bigger place. From that home to a $3 million home at the base of Griffith Park. Because a, a friend of, someone I had developed a friendship with and who was a part of our community uh, was working through his mess and decided that he was going to start using what he had to create community. And I was one of the first people he met. We had a really open, honest conversation. And a couple months later, he said, hey, I have this home. It's just me. I don't know what to do with it. You're really involved in the community. Maybe you can help create some stuff that's meaningful for people out of this home. I was like, sure. So I moved in. For three years, I got to live in a home like that. Uh, we, I mean, tons of events. A lot of people came to know Jesus. Men's groups, women. I mean, you, whatever you can think of, it happened at this place. It was like a central hub for a church that had about 6,000 people that was a part of it. And then a few years go by and things start to change. And he decides that he wants to offer his home. Mind you, it's his home, not mine. To another couple in the church so they could move in and kind of move this thing forward. And I got so angry and bitter and mad and mad at him and mad at the pastor at the church and mad at this couple. And I didn't even know them because I felt like everything that we had done should have in my mind. I deserved to be in this home. It wasn't my home. But when, when it clicked was like, you want to know what started happening after that? When I, and I did ask for forgiveness from them. So we're, we did get there. But what happened after that was I got so bitter and so angry, even though it wasn't mine, that I then went from sleeping in or having to be a part of that home to sleeping on a couch at a buddy's home to then moving to a room that wasn't much bigger to a closet. You see where this is going? Like, I started, I started from a closet, got to that point, was really ungrateful and bitter, forgot about all of this and what it was like growing up in my home as a child to get here, and it wasn't mine, to forget it all and then end up back on somebody's couch, right? So, and then, so it's been really interesting uh, over the last few years as my wife and I, we've moved here to see us kind of continue to be generous and evolve. Uh, and now we live in a home that's wonderful and our kids have room to play. But it was, I was thinking this week, like, when have I been most bitter? Like, and I was angry, like, for absolutely no reason. That was my heart, nobody else's. All those relationships are healthy and good now, by the way. So we. Okay. How many of you said that you feel like you're disciplined or aware of what's going on in your emotions? Raise your hands higher. I get like, okay, there we go. Okay. Uh, so I want to, I want to help you guys see if I can help you learn a little bit more about what's going on internally today. Uh, Chris has a, and I, so this is my, this is my fault, not Chris's fault. I sent Chris a document to put up there and it's not, like, how many of you can actually read that? Oh, wow. You can read all the way in the back? Wow. I couldn't read it, and I was in, like, the third row. I like, okay, so some of you can read that. Please forgive us for those of you who can't. I, 
I don't, we don't know how to, that's on me, but we should have done this earlier. How many of you have seen something like this? Anybody? Nobody seen anything like this? Okay. So when I'm working with clients, this is one of the ways I help them learn and start to train themselves to actually know what's going on in their body. Okay. So your mind is incredibly important. We've talked about that. Your, I think what gets neglected, like we're looking at from a spiritual perspective, you've got your mind and your heart. Your affect, what's happening emotionally in your body, the symptoms of it are below your shoulders, right? But we spend a whole lot of time up here trying to figure things out. So one of the things I try to help folks learn how to do is when you're regulating your own emotion, you have to become aware of it. You actually literally have to know what's happening in your body. So you can see that, I'll read it for those of you who can't. See, so the top line, it says in your head. So the sensations in your head when you're having certain types of emotion, pain, ache, tightness, pressure, the affect response, if you, like if you're working with someone, if I'm working with somebody and I'm asking them how they're feeling in their body and they say all the pressure's in my head, what that actually is a sign of is that they're, they're so confused emotionally that their brain can't make sense of it. It's scram, it's, it's literally, the, so like when somebody says, all I have is pressure in my head, or I don't really know, it's really unclear, and they're, they're just numb down here, that means they're completely cut off from their emotions. Like that's a really unhealthy place to be. So then you move down below your shoulders. Uh, and so one way to think about doing this is you can, you can learn how to do this. This is how I learned how to do this 10 years ago. Anytime that you leave a, relation, uh, a conversation at work, uh, your spouse, your kids, um, you transition from you know your car to your home. Pause for a half a second. Take a deep breath, like the scanners at a grocery store or whatever. Like scan down in your body, below your shoulders to your waist, and just pay attention to what's happening. Just start to locate it, because it'll cue you into what actually the closer affect or the close, closer emotional um, feeling that you're having in your body. And if you know what it is, you might actually be able to do something about it. So, fear. Here's literally how it organizes in your body: fear, anger, sadness. Freedom from all of that is joy, right? So we're going to talk about this too. Um, anxiety is not an emotion. How many of you think anxiety is an emotion? Okay, all right. Anxiety is real. I want to be real clear. It's And people deal with it. It's not the problem. Anxiety, I think the right way to think about anxiety is it's pre-affect. It's, 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 a, it's an alarm that's telling you something else is wrong. Pay attention. But I meet a lot of people that are like, I've been anxious for 20 years. I'm like, and they've been, it's, it's funny, but it's, it's like, and they've been going to therapy for 15 years and it hasn't gotten any better. It's like, that's not good. That means the person you're working with doesn't understand what's going on or they don't care about you enough to help you work through your pain. Because that's where you got to go if you're going to deal with anxiety. So what's interesting about it is anxiety, the physiological response to anxiety, it shows up in your body in a very chaotic manner, which is why it's disorienting. It's fidgetiness. Here, I'll just read what it is up here. Queasy, jittery, butterflies, nausea, pre-affect in your abdomen. But one of the other things about it, there's a jitteriness or um, a tingliness throughout your extremities. It's literally throughout your whole system. You don't know what to do with it. Fear and anxiety get mixed up quite a bit. So if you go up to fear, tight, gripping, clenching, sharp, stabbing pain in your chest. Why is that? What's the distinction between that and anxiety? Fear, when you're afraid, there's a known threat or a perceived threat. Your body, your heart constricts. Why? Because everyone's heard about the, the fight or flight response, right? Your blood has to go back out into your extremities so you can do what? Run or fight. Okay, so below that, anger. There's an energy you'll, in the, right in your sternum. 
it'll be a surge of heat. It'll shoot up through your arms, down through your arms and legs. If you think about it, when you get angry or frustrated or upset, I was going to say something else. Um, what's the most natural response you have? What do you notice? You, I literally can be sitting on my couch with somebody. They're sitting on the couch. I'm working with them, and I start to ask them. We're walking through scenarios that they're getting images of of how they feel, and I just watch their hands, and I know I know before they know that they're angry or frustrated about something, right? So the idea is that they're going to learn it too. So you have to there's a there's a movement in your hands, or you'd kick something. Sadness below that. There's a dropping heaviness weight right in your abdomen. So when you're feeling sad or you're moving into a state of grief, that's what you're going to feel in your body. Freedom from all of that, as far as I can tell, is joy, peace, confidence, hope. It, at that point, it doesn't matter what you call it. But the idea is that you're going to work through whatever pain and negative emotions that you have so that you can have joy. That's the goal. Like, what else would the goal be if not that? How many of you want to stay in fear, anger, sadness, or bitterness? Nobody. Let me give you an example of this this week. So I was working with a new client this week, uh, first time, and I was asking him, uh, we were kind of working through emotional things that he wanted to work on, relational things that he wants to work on. Uh, and he was, I asked him, I check in with my clients, like here and now, how do you feel talking to me? He's like, well, I'm really, I'm really, oh, I want to do this too, sorry. There's a distinction between being nervous and being afraid or anxious. They're not the same thing, Okay. Nerves are like, you know, I would imagine, Andy, tell me if I'm wrong. Like, even though you've done this 10,000 times, is there, like, do you have any affect in your body, any, any, no, anything noticeable in your, when you come up here? Yes. Are you afraid? No. You're nervous. They're not the same thing. Okay? Nerves, nerves won't take you out. Nerves are just some, you know, some light tension in your body, knowing that what you're about to go do might be important or, or meaningful. Uh, fear, I don't want to get up here if I'm that afraid. I'd, you know, become vulnerable, you know, become too vulnerable, exposed, and instead of embrace the fear and overcome it, I'd leave. So this client came in, and he's telling me a story, and I said, hey, how do you feel here now talking to me? And he said, well, I'm, I'm afraid. Okay? So, like, I'm a, I'm a little worried, I'm a little afraid, I don't, and I'm like, okay, so he's telling me he's worried about something. I said, all right, well, tell me, what are you most worried about here and now with me? And he said, well, maybe that you won't understand me. Maybe that you won't, like, maybe you won't see me. And then so immediately when I said that, okay, so fear indicates worry. There's something that you're, that's being projected or felt like that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be rejected or hurt. And I said, all right. So he said, well, you won't understand me or, or, um, or see me. And so when he said that, I immediately asked him, when you picture not being seen, how do you feel? And where do you think it went? Sadness. Right? So the core emotion that we need to deal with in that moment is not fear, although it looks like it's fear. It's sadness. So I asked him, sadness, drop down into your body. He described the symptoms that are up here. And what do you think happened? What do you think he started to do? Yep, he started to, to move himself through grief. Which is at the end of the day, if I'm going to look at, okay, how do I, you know, if someone says, what do you do for work? I help people deal with pain as best I can. So it's not between him and I. It was, and then, then what I do from there, you can float back. There's different trauma techniques and, 
you can float back and identify, hey, are there moments in your life where you haven't been seen? And he can just, like, yeah, all these moments. So then we can take all of them one at a time, and we can deal with all of them. Right? So the idea that he, it, and it's, I'm not going to go into this, but are any of you familiar with attachment theory? Okay. It's so like in that moment, he and I are, are, we're literally creating new neural networks where he can feel like someone here can be trusted and cares about me and wants to help me, and he's not going to hurt me, which means I'm secure. And we can expose all of this. So he's, he's learning in that moment, his brain, from a neuroplasticity perspective, how to train himself to trust. He's also learning that he can be secure with people and expose the worst parts of himself. My goal is to have that with him as much as possible and to send him back out into the world and do it with as many people as he can. Okay. Around the idea of fear. Fear is a real thing. There's a lot of things that we should be afraid of. Uh, how do you overcome fear? What would be the opposite of fear for you guys? Who said, I can't hear what anyone said. No. Peace, okay. I'm going to read a quote by someone that I heard this week. And um, if you agree with what this person said, this is going to get tricky here for a second. If you agree with what this, if you believe this statement that's true, then I want you to raise your hand. Like if you believe that it, there's, there's absolute truth in this statement. When you remove prayer and God from schools, when you remove the fear of God from people's lives, you create the possibility of fear of everything else. If you instill the fear of God, you eliminate the fear of anything else. How many of you agree with that statement? How many of you know who said that? Kanye West said that. Okay. I was like, oh, that's tricky. I don't know. You know, now here's the other thing about that. If you, if you're critical of that or judgmental of that, that ain't his problem. That's yours. I don't know anything about his life. He said that on an interview with Joe Rogan. Okay. Like, I heard that and I was like, wow, that's, that is an absolutely truthful statement coming from somebody who, I mean, you have your judgments about him, whatever, fine. But that's a real statement. If you don't fear, and I, and I think the reason I, that clicked for me, one, it was really powerful when he said it, two, it, it goes back to the idea of where we started with all this of shame. It's like, why am I willing to expose all my shame? And if you're willing to expose all your shame, why? It's because there's, when you do that, there's literally nothing that anyone can do to you. So learning to get yourself there is critical. And then obviously, First John 4, chapter 4, verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Some of you know that scripture. There's also... Uh, we're thinking about shame, uh, verse, uh, Proverbs 25, verse 3. Uh, there's different versions. One version, those who trust in you shall never be put to shame. Uh, another version says, uh, those who hope in you will never be put to shame. And then uh, around the idea of, of, of moving towards your pain or your grief. Uh, and this was a way that I was thinking about therapy when I first started out. Uh, those who sow with tears shall reap with songs of joy. Psalm 126, verse 5. 
And then in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, uh, those who mourn shall be comforted. Like, I think there's plenty of scripture that point towards, like, be willing and, and honest and engage your shame and your mess and your fear and your doubts and your worries. And on the other side, you will have peace, joy, patience, love, forgiveness, freedom. What was that? I think I'm going to wrap up here because this could go into a whole nother. Um, This could keep going, which I know, Robin, you said take your time, but this could go into like a whole nother, whole arena of stuff. Uh, I do want to, so, and this is connected to the idea of neuroplasticity, right? So people look at addiction, whether you struggle, if you have any, know anyone that struggles with addiction. And yes, there might be some genetic component to addiction, but I still am going to believe that I've met people who have absolutely wrecked their lives with certain kinds of addiction and completely shifted their lives back with God, but they've, which, which embodies the idea that neuroplasticity is a real thing. So there's choices that have to be made, and there's people who are dealing with genetic or, or possibly neurochemical disruptions in their system that make it more complicated. So I think there's the line of, of helping people learn how to discipline themselves, but also not just looking at somebody and saying, hey, just stop doing what you're doing. Like, it's not that simple, because if that were true, any of the areas that you were undisciplined in, if anyone just said, well, just don't eat as much sugar, you'd get, you're, you get offended. It means you haven't disciplined yourself to go beyond that. So I think we have to be really careful uh, in those conversations. But when you're stuck in a negative state or when, and when you're using something negative to cope, as far as I can tell, it, it's undealt with grief or undealt with trauma at the core of it. You need to learn how to deal with those things. If you want to just like, so the opposite of the, I guess if you're creating the negative neural pathways, this is essentially what happens when you're using something to cope that's unhealthy. Um, usually it develops out of undealt with grief, pain, or trauma. Uh, when you use a mechanism that's used to regulate neg- a negative emotional state, that mechanism is associated with the relief of the state and produces neurochemicals in your system that are pleasurable. Your system then begins to need or crave the relief of that negative state. So your system looks to in the future or looks to the future to resolve an issue that's negative in a way that's worked before, but that's unhealthy. So if that's true negatively, then you have to, the inverse of that would be what's true positive to discipline yourself. So I'm going to pause there and then I can pray real quick. And then you're coming up. Okay. Uh, if I'm trying to think if you guys want, I, I can send that. I don't know how best to get everyone that diagram. If you want it to learn it, I don't, I don't know. We can figure it. Just come talk to me and give me your email address and I'll send it to you. Um, all right, Jesus, thank you um, for this morning. Thank you for uh, the hope and the freedom that you provide. Uh, we ask that anything that we're learning about you, uh, that we're learning about your kingdom and your people, um, that we would embody that, uh, that, that we would live from that place uh, to bring joy and love uh, and hope to others. Father, we ask for your provision. Uh, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.